Hello and welcome to the Oxygenetic Podcast. We're brought to you every week by our sponsors, PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. You can personalize your fueling strategy so you can perform at your best with 15% off your first order of electrolytes and carbohydrate fuel with the code OA23 at PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Coach Rob Wilby, and every week I bring you an episode of this podcast to help motivate and inspire you. Before we go on, if you are listening on a podcast player, we are also on YouTube these days as well. So if you can get over onto YouTube, you can click like and subscribe on this episode. It will really help our channel out in terms of reaching new athletes and helping athletes out with advice and information. So it's great to be able to listen to a podcast as you're driving around, but I found that trying to listen as I'm at my desk isn't quite as useful on a podcast player. And sometimes just having people's friendly faces there in the background to look at as they're talking to you can really help. So if you want to give that a try, get over to YouTube, click like and subscribe for us, and that will really help us out, reach more people and help more people out. This week, we're continuing with our theme of helping people out with swim advice, and we're focusing this week on answering questions that listeners have sent into us. So we've had things on Instagram, we've had things over email. If you've got any questions you'd like to send over for us to answer, please do. We might not get to them that exact week, but we always keep them and we'll make a list of those and get to those that are most going to help the listeners. And also you can be aware that we're going to do a special Q&A over on Ironman Europe's Instagram feed in a couple of weeks time. So keep an eye out for that. Ironman Europe, if you don't follow them, you can click follow on Instagram there and they'll give you the opportunity to ask a question of us and we shall go ahead and answer the the most pertinent questions that are going to help out the most people in their quest to improve their swimming for Ironman this coming summer. So keep your eyes peeled for that over on Ironman Europe's Instagram feed in a couple of weeks time. Now, if you've enjoyed the information on the last couple of podcasts around ways to improve your swimming and you've been considering getting some coaching to help you out for your main event coming up this year, we'd love to hear from you. We've got a couple of slots have opened up on Team Oxygen Addicts for triathlon coaching for this season, which is pretty unusual for this time of year, actually. So if you'd like to take advantage of that, get in contact by clicking the link in the show notes. That'll allow you to book a slot straight to our calendar and we can have a 20 minute, no obligation chat with you to find out what your goals are, how we could best help you out. And if you'd be a good fit for training with Team Oxygen Addict, we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to give you some advice about how we think we could best advise you on your goals going forwards. So again, there's just a link in the show notes there that'll book straight through and you can have a chat with us there. Or if you want, just drop us a line at help at oxygenaddict.com and we can um, give you some information over email initially. Before we go on to answer the listeners' questions, just want to give a sponsorship slot here for our sponsors, PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. You can use their free fuel and hydration planning tool to receive a personalized strategy for your next race. The plan will help you understand your own carbohydrate, electrolytes and fluid needs so you can refine your own strategy during training. Don't forget, you can also book a free one-to-one video consultation with PFNH's athlete support team, and they'll be happy to help you nail your race nutrition plan, helping you to perform at your best on race day. Right, without further ado, let's head forwards with Coach Chris Palfman and I discussing and answering your questions all around how to improve your swimming for Ironman performance. I'm joined once again by my co-host, Coach Chris Palfman. Chris, how are you today? Hello, Rob. Hello, everyone. Great to be back. So we've had two episodes so far where we've covered um, we've covered swim technique, we've covered swim training methods, we've covered mindsets around swimming. Today's episode is going to focus on asking all the questions that have been sent into us by either athletes we coach or listeners to the podcast or listeners to the show. So if you're one of the people who sent those in, thanks very much. We're not going to name you on air and on video as it were as we answer them but it's been really useful for us hasn't it to get an idea of the questions that have popped into people's heads as they've been listening and it's going to give us the ability to give a bit of clarity around those answers totally and i think it's opened up a conversation and people are really thinking about their swimming on an individual basis as opposed to just turning up to the pool and going through the motion so i think hopefully this is a kind of um, productive step for a lot of the triathletes out there and i'd like to think that a lot of these questions are actually questions that we've all had at some point in our swim development and it's always good to refresh with those original questions but also i think that um yeah the athletes are going to have a lot of takeaways from this one 
Yeah, definitely. I was just talking to an athlete before in a one-to-one call who said, off the basis of last week's podcast, he'd been to the pool and he thought, I'm going to do the big three drills today just to do them again because I've got so many different ones I've been trying. And he said it made such a difference with swimming, just focusing in on the fist drill for one session that he thought, you know, it's been ages since I've come around to having a go at that drill. And I could immediately feel the difference that it made in my swim stroke just by doing it. So if you're one of the people who was listening to the last episode, or even if you haven't heard the last episode, we talked about three main drills in that episode. You can go away and try. One was for improving the catch and pull. One was for improving body position. One was for improving rotation. With those three drills, I think all the other drills kind of sit underneath them on a, on a tree of ways to improve your swim stroke but that's the big three for swimming so if you're going to go and do drills getting those ones done first i think will make a really big difference to your swim so listen back to our last episode for the information on those ones right then chris so we will jump straight in and we'll go into we'll go into these questions and we'll answer them as best as we can i think brilliant these are in no particular order um and the first question is how do we deal with a swim plateau and I think what yeah. the listener is trying to get to the bottom of is that they're, it sounds like they're a swimmer or a triathlete that has been trying to improve their swim for a considerable amount of time. A period of time where whatever they end up doing doesn't seem to improve their swimming in terms of swim time. Maybe that's one of the issues that they're just looking at swim time as opposed to swim efficiency. But how would you answer this athlete if they come to you saying, I've hit a plateau, what do I do next? Yeah, well, this this comparison struck me last night. I don't know if you've seen this. There's a new Netflix uh, series about golfers just started called um, called Full Swing, I think. And the comparison between swimming and golf is much closer, I think, than the comparison from swimming to either biking or running. Because the old line that running and biking are like a blue-collar sport, if you do the work, you're going to improve and you, you get immediate payback for doing the work. You can see it, you can feel it, you get faster immediately and it's measurable. And swimming isn't like that. Swimming is much more like golf because they're both so skill related. And it's not like your body learns a skill and then repeats it consistently every single time. The reason I mentioned the Netflix videos, it it showed golfers playing in the PGA Tour events. And one day the guy shot seven under par and was leading by a mile. And then the next day on on the range trying to warm up. He couldn't even hit a ball straight. He was sending it, you know, 90, 100 feet over to the right and 90 feet. And you saw him throw his clubs in the air and say, I, I, just, I can't play golf anymore. And I'm thinking, this guy's the world number three at the moment. The comparison to swimming, I think, is, is going to be obvious to anyone who's tried to get better at swimming because you can get in the pool one day and have an amazing swim, come back the very next day, and you can be five or 10 seconds, 100 slower, feel as though you've never put a pair of trunks on before. And so it's really, really challenging to remember that the progress isn't linear across this sport. You are going to have some days that feel absolutely magic and you feel like you're making loads of progress. But I'm afraid I can guarantee that they're going to be followed very shortly after by, if not the next day or the next session, very soon after, you're going to have another session where it feels as though you've gone back to being a beginner again. So it's very much more of a wavy line with possibly if you extrapolate out there's a you know there's a there's an upward trend across them it is very hard for that type a personality that wants to see consistent progress day on day week on week you're just not going to see it so you have to accept that it's it's part of the sport i think it sounds like this particular athlete might be falling into the trap of using only one or two metrics and this the metrics that this person might be using might be just css pays from a CSS test, or it might be from their regular hundreds that they do on a weekly basis. And I think that's okay. And it's important to keep an eye on those things. But at the end of the day, we're training for the, for the majority of athletes, an open water, whether it's in a lake river or, or the sea, very complicated and messy swim. So actually your hundreds in a nice calm pool isn't always the best metric. So if you're still working on your swimming and you're working on different skill sets that you can then bring to race days, such as sighting, swimming straight, being super efficient, that the actual toll on your body is a lot less swim on swim, then I think that is overcoming a plateau. And it's not just the swim time that we're looking for. 
So yeah. I know, you know, we've used the word frustrating a few times on these podcasts about swimming. We've also used the word patience. And I think we're going to be using them again in this particular case mm. where I think we've got to think a little bit outside the box of what a swim plateau might mean to athletes. And it's not just your swim time in a clean pool. Yeah. It's reassurance, isn't it? I think it's reassurance that if you were the coach standing on pool deck next to the athlete and they were coming in and looking at the watch and going, I'm trying harder, but I'm not going any faster. The natural thing that a coach would say would be, that's okay. You're improving just by being in the water. The more time you spend in the water, the more you're going to improve. But the improvement might not be in how fast you're swimming. That's really important. Your your idea of efficiency in the water is so, so important. And it's not just about the time you see on the watch at the end of your Ironman. It's not about and, and we do fall foul of that. You know, I want to break, pick a random number, 70 minutes, 65, 60, whatever it is. But we don't often sit back to ask the question, is it the right thing for me to do to break 60 minutes? I remember you you giving an example of one of your best swims was your most relaxed one rather than, you know, I could have swum a 56, but I swam a 58 and it felt really easy and I was almost bored. That's the measure of success for me. And it's actually not your fitness. It's the fact you had the mental fortitude to choose to swim more relaxed and more slowly than you could have done because that's going to pay you back in the last hour of the run. Whereas I'm sure everyone's done this. I've had a swim where I got a sniff of, of breaking whatever it was, 35 minutes and a half Ironman with a couple hundred meters to go. The max effort happens to try and break this ridiculous arbitrary number. And what end up happens is the last three miles of the run are a horror show because you've gone completely nuts in the past last four minutes of your swim. So it is about reassuring athletes that, just by getting consistently in the water, th that is going to help you make progress in terms of your ability to be a relaxed swimmer on race day, even if you might not be seeing that in terms of your times of plateauing in the pool. That's spot on, Robin. Um, kind of my final point on this question is you just referred back to um, one of my mem memorable swims, which was a really relaxed one that you just mentioned. And actually you know, my fitness hadn't changed that much from one race to another. I was, I was fit in both races. One swim was poor. One swim was good. One, the first swim, I kind of went really hard on the swim. I wanted to make the front group and it cost me a lot. And so therefore my bike and run weren't as good in the second swim. I approached it far more relaxed and I tried to approach it, um, by being a more, I actually employed all the skill set that I'd been teaching myself over the weeks and months. And so that was bilateral breathing. That was making sure that I was swimming straight, making sure that I was sighting. So my eyes were coming out every other stroke and I was finding the good feet to be on. And that stuff is stuff that you can work in the pool week on week without stressing your system to a huge amount. athletes that are saying bilateral breathing i've been trying it for weeks i want to give up it's really frustrating but if i can tell you from my own experience that my best swim was actually the one where i was able to throw in bilateral breathing to make sure that i was aware of my surroundings and i could find the quickest feet on the day and make sure that i had the best line to the first boy actually it is worth you know sticking to that really frustrating task of bilateral breathing because it does come in handy and it's not yeah. just about yeah. that swim speed on those hundreds that you're doing week on week. Yeah. And that actually leads us really nicely into the next question, doesn't it? Around talking about the difference between just training in the pool and how we're going to apply that for a race situation. This question is brilliant. Actually, I can hear the panic in their voice, which is um, I see my swim times improving in the pool, but can't translate that into faster open water times. Help! Exclamation mark. I think we all know that feeling where you're desperate for help because you put in all the hard work and you're not getting rewarded on race day. So what can this yeah. athlete do? I think there's two parts to this. The first one is it's really great that the fitness is improving. And we know it is because the times in a very controlled environment in the pool are improving. However, there's much more to improving your times in the open water on race day than being fitter in a straight line backwards and forwards in a controlled environment in the pool. So I think it's firstly, 
have a look at the things that you can also take care of that are going to help you improve in the open water. So you've just mentioned there, for example, sighting is probably the biggest, or I'm not going to say sighting, but the ability to swim where you intend to swim on race day is the biggest determinant of how fast you swim relative to the course that's out there. So we're going to assume that the course is the correct length, which again, it often might not be. So let's put that on one side for a minute. But then being able to choose to swim a straight line between boys or being able to not choose the straight line, but choose a pair of feet of other swimmers around us, because they're really the two main big variables, aren't they? It's the people around us and the environment we have to swim through where I think I've shared this story with you. I'm on France a few years ago. The first boy that we swam to was on the horizon. It was at the time, it was about a kilometer and a half in a straight line off the beach to get to the first boy. It was it was the most ridiculously long swim. So much so the athletes next to me were saying that boy out there can't be where we're swimming to. That's the shipping lane. You know, nobody could believe how far away, whatever it was, 1.2K was in a straight line. Good luck swimming. If anyone who's ever tried to swim a length in a pool with their eyes closed, good luck swimming nearly a mile in a straight line. So that's the first part of it. It's how do we get this person to be able to develop the ability to swim straight and swim with others come race day? That's spot on. I think we've all either been in a race or watched swimmer drifting off to the right or left, and you're just pulling your hair up knowing how many hours of swim training this individual has done but they're not able to apply it when it's necessary on race day so it really really is worth doing that i found that in my own swim as well where mm. my swim times were getting better in the pool but then i feel so frustrated going out into my local lake and either swimming with others that are a similar standard to me or on my own and looking at my watch the pace being five or ten um seconds slower per hundred and i'm thinking What's the point of me doing all this swim training if I'm if I'm actually slow in the open water? And so mm. I think you're right that the first element is not necessarily focusing on fitness. It's more of having a toolbox that's relevant to the environment you're in. And in this case, it's the open water. And the open water can be different depending on conditions. The cold for a start is a pretty big one. Mm. Swimming in those cold temperatures, then that is one element that you need to work on. And then you've got the waves, you've got the wind, you've got position of boys, and then you've got 200 or 500 people around you. So you do need to get ready for that. And it's very different. We're, you know, week on week, we're in a very narrow lane. We know we're safe. Someone behind us is going to give us five seconds. The person in front is going to give you five seconds. So it's very, very controlled. It's To me, it's similar to having someone train on an indoor bike trainer all year round and then setting them off into a group ride race on the road is chaos. they might be the fittest yeah. there be, yeah. they can be the fittest there but they won't they won't win or they won't feature towards the front so you have to throw yourself into that environment well two things to add here then let's talk about ways people can train to improve this the first thing i want to say before we go into that part is I'm a big fan of just ignoring any of the data that comes from a Garmin or similar in open water swimming. I have yet to see anything that convinces me that they can measure the distance and the speed that you travel in open water sufficiently accurately yet. That doesn't mean that the the narrow margins we're going to measure ourselves by as athletes, you know, five seconds plus or minus is a win or disaster. I just don't think it's accurate enough to measure it and predict it enough. I've seen so many swimmers traces where they've swum in triangles around the same boys and their triangles are in the car park over here or they're in the hills over here on the next one. So put all that on one side. Forget what Garmin paces are telling you. Let's just think about the skills. The first thing is, if you are serious about swimming well in open water, you're going to have to train with other people and get better at the skills of swimming in open water. That's not to say you have to do that with people in open water, but you are firstly going to have to commit to doing some training with other swimmers. So you're going to have to practice drafting of other swimmers in order to make the most of them. You can do that either in the pool or in open water, but you're going to have to practice open water sighting if you're swimming in the pool as you get towards your race day, you're going to need to practice sighting as often in the pool as you will on race day. And that's probably for most people every three to five strokes, maximum every five strokes. 
which means most people should be sighting in a pool three times per length minimum. The reason that's important is if we spend all our time practicing perfect technique in the pool and keeping our head level with our shoulders, if we're then lifting our head or lifting our eyes to see where we're going every third or fourth stroke, that's going to change our stroke. So I'm a really big fan of, if you like, getting perfect over the winter and then throwing the rule book out as we're in springtime and starting to practice a technique or a swim technique that's a lot more suited to swimming well in open water, which is we don't need to go into all the different ways that people can practice sighting now, but at least getting your eyeballs out of the water to see the end of the length is the very minimum you need to start to be doing. Again, we're talking here within the last eight weeks or so before your before your races that year. I think that's a pretty good test. You know, in your um, controlled environment at the swimming pool, if you know that you can do regular hundreds, at, let's say two minutes per hundred, see how that time is affected if you're sighting three times per length. And if there's a big difference, then your sighting isn't efficient. You should be yeah. able to integrate it into your stroke where there's a very, very minimal difference in your efficiency and in your speed um, and pace so that's another good kind of um, tool that you can use in the pool use the time use the clock but not to be going faster but to be making sure that you're not going slower when you're actually using open water skills within the pool yeah brilliant I think I think that should go a long way to explain to people why it's no surprise if you go from swimming with perfect form in a pool to having to size to every three or four strokes every time you're swimming in open water, why the times are going to be different. So there's a lot more to it than just expecting the two to be the same for sure. Yeah. So the next question is one that I think most coaches around the world pull their hair out when they read it. Um, and it's all about uh, technology. So how do I use technology such as a Garmin watch or similar during a swim set? And <laughs> yeah. I think coaches are ripping their hair out because we've all seen it too many times where a swimmer is too dependent on their watch to the point where it becomes detrimental to their swim. And I've seen it, you know, fairly recently with um, athletes where they're downloading the whole instructions onto their watch. And then during the swim, something has to change. They have to change lane or they're not able to go when they're supposed to go because of the lane traffic. And suddenly the watch and the athlete are totally out of sync. They're then pressing stop, they're pressing pause, they're pressing go, everything falls out the window. And at the end of the day, we just want the athletes to stick as close to as possible what's in the plan. But we're very aware that they're dealing with lane traffic. So if it's a five minute rest or 10, sorry, five or 10 second rest at the end of each interval, try and stick to that. But if it happens being 15 or 20, that's not the end of the world because that's the reality of the situation you're in. But nothing frustrates me more than an athlete writing at the end of their session. I did the first two and then had to get out because I couldn't remember what my session was and my watch went mad and that was game over. Yeah. So yeah. How how would you get an athlete to best use technology in a swim set? Um I think Andy summed this up best. He said that the the Garmin swim program has been written by a really clever computer programmer who I doubt has ever been for a swim. And I think it sums up perfectly. They've, they've had a task sheet to do in order to turn a swim set in training peaks into a thing that the Garmin can show. But it's not, I don't think it's quite there yet. I would, I would say there's a bit of massaging to be done because the usability aspect of it, as you've just described, it can be so frustrating to athletes. So here's the best technology for swim sets piece of paper with your swim set written on it when you get to the pool with it printed out or written out in hand put it on a kickboard so it just rests against the kickboard like that dip the whole thing into water and then put it down on the end of the pool resting against your water bottle and then that way you've got a total record of your swim set that's there the whole way through and at the end of the set you can just scrunch it into a ball and chuck it into the bin okay if you've got an even clever waterproof solution that makes them reusable brilliant i've never come up with anything that doesn't eventually leak so just a piece of paper for each printout works really really well have the watch there as well it's great that it can record your swims and the split times going correctly let's say some of the time maybe all of the time but then if that goes wrong you still get your main swim set done 
I'm still a massive advocate, Chris, of people having an old school Timex digital watch because I believe that it's some of the best feedback that an athlete can get as they're swimming. If you just press the start as you push off the wall, as you come back after your first hundred, instead of tumble turning, hand against the wall, quick glance at the watch, and it gives you some feedback on how fast you're swimming. One of my original coaches used to make me do this and do a like an aerobic bilateral 500 meter timed swim where I looked at the watch every 100 meters and it gives you a really good feel for sort of how fast you're swimming. You get the immediate feedback of if you can't swim bilaterally because you're going a bit too fast, you know you have to slow down. And then you get that check-in of the time on the watch as you get to the end of the length as well. So technology can be really useful until it gets in the way. And anyone using the latest Garmin Training Peaks joined up thing, they'll know. You press go, the time that you're meant to be swimming pops up on the watch and it's covered by the, the green Garmin arrow. It, they need to massage it a bit. They need to rewrite it very slightly. It's nearly there. It's nearly brilliant, but nearly is not quite good enough at the moment for people. So you've got to have the old school solution with you as well. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, have that piece of paper always in your swim bag. Totally. Mm. It's it's totally worth doing. I think I used to print out all of my swim sets for the coming four week block and have them all in a little folder in my bag. I mean, I'm a bit of a geek like that and then i'd go through and then print them all out again for the next month and they'd all be there in the swim bag all the time so i knew that i wouldn't have to think about it from from day to day mm. i also think that um don't rely on the watch too much because one day it's going to be out of battery or there'll be a malfunction and obviously you still want the swim set on a piece of paper that's plan b but plan c is look at go to any swim club of a fairly high level swim club none of the swimmers are wearing watches i always found that fascinating i'd be a triathlete and i'd turn up to yeah. the oxford swim club and i'd yeah. be the only one with a giant watch on my hand and i'd be the only one at the end of each lane you know looking at what my pace was and all these things and they're just looking at the the clock in the background it's, it's almost ingrained they they're not mm. desperate to see that pace for every single 25 meters 50 meters 100 meters because they've been taught and it's you know it's part of their genes now Nearly, that they know what easy swimming is medium tempo hard swimming and i think that traffics can learn from that and not be too reliant have it recording in the background but don't have it as your primary kind of sensory mm. output that you're always looking for yeah i'll interject here as well chris on something else that that same swim coach said to me and, and this was a revelation to me because i'd never realized this before he said you're gonna know as you're swimming when you get to the wall you'll always touch the wall with the same hand if things have gone perfectly. So for me, I'd get to the end of the length and it would be a right-hand touch. I'd be there. That would be the last hand out before a tumble turned or it would be the, the hand that touched the wall. He said, if it's the other arm that's reaching out for the wall, you've either had a very good length in terms of technique or a very bad length. He said, you're never going to have such a bad length that you'll be two strokes out. It's always going to be one either way. And I was like, huh, I'd never considered that. So whatever it is, but my right arm to touch the wall was, let's say it was 20 strokes. And occasionally I'd have a really good technique length and it would be 19 strokes. And I could reflect and go, oh, that was a that was a good length. I felt really good there. And it's opposite arm against the wall. Sometimes it's the right arm against the wall and you feel like it was a horrendous length. And then that's become a, you know, that's the other one the other way around again. But that was really interesting to get a like a traditional swim coach's point of view. And he was saying, that's your feedback at the end of every single length. Did you have a good length? Did you have a really good length? Or did it feel bad and it was a bad length? It's it's the opposite arm. So that's something for people to become aware of. Which arm is going to touch the wall at the end of the length? I really like that. And interestingly, it doesn't involve technology. Um, mm. you know that's just one example where you can learn a lot as a swimmer on the go you can be thinking a lot about your stroke but you're not relying on any technology to tell you whether you're swimming better or not so yeah here's um another question which features a lot in the um swim world which is how should i use a pool boy and when yeah great question um first up Swim coaches are split into two camps here. They're either swim swim pool boys are the devil incarnate and you should never use them, or they're a great tool that we should use. 
if we know how to use them. And I'm definitely in the second camp. I think they can be really, really useful, but not to take the place of learning how to swim properly, which is how a lot of triathletes tend to go to them. They tend to use the pull boy to make the bum float. Typically, the runners or cyclists who have quite sinky legs and haven't got great propulsion is the wrong word, but buoyancy with their feet. That's not how to use it. Deciding I'll be swimming in a wetsuit while swim with a pool boy isn't the way to use it. The way to use it is it's going to give you a bit of extra buoyancy for a length or two, and then you're going to take it out and put it on the side of the pool. And then you're going to swim again and try and get your body into that same position and that same feeling of being balanced and relaxed in the water. And it's going to be really hard and it's not going to feel the same. So you're going to come back after 50 meters and get the pool boy again by alternating 50 with the pool boy and 50 without the pool boy. You'll go in a kind of good body position with bum up, not so good body position with bum down in the water. And you have to learn to try and replicate that position in the lengths that you're swimming without the pool boy. That's what it's there for. It's a tool to help change your body position if your body position needs changing. So, it's really well received for a lot of athletes, isn't it? From a running and swimming, uh, from a running and cycling background, because it makes you feel better and can make you feel faster. Often swimmers hate it because it just makes them feel really alien in the water because they already have good body balance. I think it really relates well to what we've been talking about in the previous two podcasts on swimming, which is we're all about trying to isolate your limiters. And this is a great way to do that because you're taking out basically 50% of your body movement. So chunk downwards into legs, hips. So if you're able to do that and be conscious of how it should feel when you've got a pool boy, which is great for a lot of triathletes, it does feel easier to, to swim with a pool boy, but don't fall into the trap of doing 400s after 400 after 400 with it, because you're kind of integrating unrealistic poor techniques. Yes. You have to yes. be able to put it on the side and then challenge yourself to try and replicate those motor patterns. And so I think little and often is going to be a real good way. And you mentioned, you know, doing 25, doing fifties. I think that's brilliant. And I think doing fifties, for example, is far better than doing five hundreds with a pool boy. And, you, you know, we've all had conversations with swimmers saying I can do a brilliant 500 with a pool boy. Absolutely fantastic. Right. Super smooth bilateral breathing my you know my legs are nice parallel to the surface of the water take it out and it's literally like a completely different swimmer that's where they've relied on the pool boy too often and it's really hard to undo that so if you're fairly new to swimming or you're kind of playing around with different swim tools pool boy embrace it but little and often is going to be the way forward yeah Totally. I heard this old phrase years ago that it makes you swim better, but it doesn't necessarily make you a better swimmer. And that's the thing to bear in mind. If you train with it exclusively and then you haven't got it on race day, then lo and behold, really, you've been training your body in a position you're not going to be able to replicate. Even with a wetsuit on, you're not going to be able to replicate yeah. it. It's all about little and often and learning to try and repeat that position you had in the water with the pool boy when you haven't got the pool boy. Mm. I think uh, a lot of swimmers fall into the trap of using it as a strength workout. And I've heard that mm. a lot um, when I'm when I'm on the side of the pool where they're thinking, I'm going to do a hard 400, 500, 800. And I'm just going to be working my upper torso and my arms. And I think that's a pretty, uh, pretty dangerous area to be in because that's not what's going to make you a better swimmer in the long run. It might feel good at the time and it, it does isolate the front loading of your body which can feel good because it feels very productive but actually if you approach swimming as a technique based essentially drill kind of session as opposed yeah. to a strength session it's going to work better for you in the long term that's exactly it the pool boys there is a drill that's the way to think about it and the using the pool boy to develop strength in the pull and catch is something that elite swimmers can do but they'll do a small amount of it in a relatively high volume, 20, 25, 30 hour swim week. I just don't think it's the thing for a an adult onset swimmer, middle-aged triathlete swimming only a couple of hours a week. I don't think that's what it's there for. Strength in the pool is not your limiter. Your body position is going to be a limiter and extra time with the pool boy is going to make that worse, unfortunately, rather than better. That's really good advice. I like that. 
Yeah. This um, this next question is one that is quite similar in many ways, which is, should I use fins? Question mark. Yeah, and, and again, it's one of those answers where it's going to be entirely down to the way that the athlete uses fins because they're a brilliant tool. They're a brilliant way to isolate part of your stroke and help improve it. If you just swim with fins, it can end up a bit like when you put a snorkel and mask on on holiday and you go powering around with your feet like an outboard motor. That's great and it's really fun. But that element of fast waggly feet kicking that we get taught as a kid in swim lessons isn't unfortunately going to help us swimming as a triathlete at all. The way to use those fins is to use them for the kind of drills. We mentioned the unco drill last week, for example. It's going to help an athlete get a bit more propulsion, especially if they're from a non-swimming background and their ankles are not very flexible. It's going to help them perform those drills better. And I think that's what they're there for. If at any point it feels as though your swimming is being powered along by your feet, then you can be pretty sure that the fins are are not doing the job that we want them there for because it's not there to be like a turbo boost. It's there to help you generate a little bit more of that kind of that hip rotation that we talked about last time. Spot on. Um, the way that uh, I really benefited from fins a few years ago was I did really struggle with the bilateral breathing at one point. And to have that extra propulsion in a really easy part of my swim was brilliant because it just helped everything raise up a little bit so my hips weren't dropping. And actually, it was then that I was getting really comfortable with breathing on both sides. And so I'd only yeah. use that for, call it 50 meters, 75 meters, and then take them straight off. And I'm not looking at the swim times either because they're totally distorted. But I, it gave me the confidence that I was able to breathe on both sides. And it just takes patience to keep working on it. So for me, and I think I'm kind of repeating what you're saying, but I'd, I'd just use swims to help me with drills as opposed to help me with swim times or you know through my repetitions because then i think it's a pretty slippery slope if you start doing hundreds or 400s with fins i'm not yeah. sure it's going to yeah. help in the long term yeah totally agree here's another question um that triathletes ask a lot which is do i need to do lots of kicking drills yeah this is a classic one isn't it 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 often feels as though kick drills are in there because it's almost an easy thing for a swim coach to give to athletes to do and again i think the 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 answer to this is in the way that we're doing kicking drills i'm a massive fan of the unco drill and that involves kicking and the kick is there to drive your hip rotation i am not a fan at all of getting in and doing 25 meters holding the kickboard out in front of you like my 11 year old son gets given honestly i sit there so frustrated sometimes as he's learning to swim because it almost looks like it's a an excuse for a bit of a break for the swim teacher while while they're going up and down doing this because it doesn't really especially for triathletes it doesn't help them generate any kind of body position it's just firstly really really tiring and secondly do you remember in the early days of this when you got given it by a swim coach and all the ex-swimmers power off down the pool and you come to a dead stop after 12 metres and you have to do some breaststroke legs to get going again. If that's you, you shouldn't be made to feel bad about the fact that your kick isn't propulsive enough to send you down the pool. Largely, I think, if you're from a running or cycling background, our ankle ligaments are strong and inflexible for a reason, especially from runners. They're there to provide real ankle strength on on ground where you're running, where you don't want to turn your ankle over. Any kind of swimmer who can extend their foot so that their feet and their toes go straight by the very nature of being able to do that. I'm not going to say they've got weak ligaments in their ankles, but they've got lax ligaments in their ankles and they've developed that to be able to kick but it is not great for strength and um, stability is a better word around the ankle for running. So triathletes, don't worry if you can't do kick drills. If you're not very good at it, we'll get you to use some fins as part of the unco drill. But kicking is only there to help your body position be flat, not to provide, um, not to provide propulsion down the pool. Perfect. The way that I used kick drills back in the day was I'd always do it without any other aid so um, I'd either be kicking on my back so imagine 
if you're um, you push off the wall, you go straight onto your back and you put your arms more or less behind your ears and head. And then you're forced to have really good body position. So your hips are kicking up and then you do a real light flutter kick. And that was I learned how to use my body position efficiently through the water. It wasn't actually That's on brilliant. my front. It was on my back yeah. and it gave me body awareness. And I always had um, access to oxygen because my head was always out the water. And the first few, it felt difficult, but actually I found it far more beneficial than copying what everyone else was doing, which is basically going up and down with a, with a kickboard, which I didn't think was any good for my position because it was literally reinforcing what I'm trying not yeah. to do, which is yeah. my hips going down and my feet, legs and feet dragging through the water so if you can find the drills that enable you to be as close to the surface as the water as possible for the least amount of effort those are the drills that are going to be helping you not the ones that are reinforcing that your legs um, are starting to sink 100 percent. and it comes back doesn't it to whatever you're doing is there to aid your body position in the water rather than to make you better at whatever it is kick catch fist anything like that we talked last week about the 656 drill, and that's really good to help people develop an effective kick that's going to help the body position in the water because those six strokes that they do, or the six kicks they do, and then the five strokes in between are going to generate that momentum that gives them a nice body position as they're kicking. So, yeah, a combination of those, but kicking only there as part of another drill, not as a drill on its own. Yeah. This is a question that's a really good one as well, which is, um, should I swim with three stroke breathing? Question mark. Teacher said I should be aiming for five or seven stroke breathing. I can yeah. already see in your eyes that you've got a pretty clear answer to this one, Rob. Yeah, well, this is from one of our athletes, isn't it? Who went and had a went and had a, a bit of a lesson from a coach at a local swim club. And the swim teacher said to them, I notice you're swimming bilateral all the time. I want you to try and do some five-stroke and some seven-stroke breathing because it's going to make you really good at hypoxic swimming. And that's got to be a good thing, right? And there was this like, oh, what? Like, and again, it's a separation of church and state thing. That's very effective for swimmers who are going to be doing swim galas and who have to develop the ability to effectively, you know, they don't breathe from the moment they go under the flags, tumble, turn and come back out again. They have to learn how to swim essentially without any oxygen in the body. And five strokes, seven stroke breathing is fantastic for that. I just want to reiterate that for triathletes, we want to practice the things that we're going to be doing you should never be aiming to send yourself hypoxic during either training or racing. So the three-stroke breathing is going to be as much stress as you ever need to put on yourself. And I think it's worth remembering that that can be a real challenge for triathletes. Going from two-stroke breathing to three-stroke breathing can feel like an eternity, can't it? There's a pretty glaring difference between a swimmer training for their swim galas versus a triathlete aiming for their open water chaotic swim and yeah. we have to be we have to be realistic with who we are what we're doing and what we're training for and the point is we're only swimming let's call it two to three times a week a lot of these swim teachers and coaches and and swimmers themselves are swimming once or twice a day six to seven days a week and therefore they've got a very different approach to their swimming they feel very natural in the water and they have to vary a lot of their swim sets due to the amount of swimming they do we've only got call it two to three hours of swimming a week we have to be really careful how we use that time and i'd much rather see an athlete focusing on translating their two breath swimming into three as opposed to either going from three to seven or you know how whatever it might be two to five it's yeah. we, we've got limited time and we want to use that time as kind of uh cleverly as possible and unfortunately i think that in this case it's sticking to to what we said to this athlete which was stick to your three you're doing a great thing with what you're doing there yeah 100 percent. and and the addition to this was the other thing the coach said was i've noticed you're swimming 100 and then taking a five second break let's extend that let's have you swim 200s let's have you swim 400s which again great advice for later on in the season and later on in the training plan but for right now it misunderstands the 
the challenge that that uh, an adult onset triathlon swimmer has, which is our biggest limiter is our ability to swim with consistent good technique and not get tired so the reason we're limiting our endurance swims to 100 meters at a time with a short break is so that our body gets a little break and we practice perfect technique all the time rather than trying to swim 300 400 600 800 as you've said a swimmer from that teacher's squad is going to be able to do that like nothing because it's what they do twice a day it's much more of a challenge for an adult triathlete who isn't at that stage of their training and fitness yet, for sure. I think this uh, is well summed up by the old classic phrase of practice makes perfect, which isn't necessarily true. It's perfect practice makes perfect. And the only way we're able to do perfect practice within swimming is having regular breaks, especially as um, late comes to the sport. And don't forget, we're triathletes. We're not swimmers. We've been doing an enormous amount of volume in cycling with some intense with running with all your strength and conditioning there's a lot going on there so you've got to respect your body and there is going to be deep onset of fatigue so give your body a chance and replicate the perfect stroke the most amount of times the way to do that is to respect the rest that you have between each interval yeah definitely a little addition here to our, our question about kick drills that came up before. One of our athletes just said, look, my athletes are really, my athletes, my ankles are really stiff and they mean that I can't do kick drills. I literally go backwards if I try to do kick drills. What shall I do? And and this, I think, highlights the, the challenge of a triathlete trying to swim with swimmers, doesn't it? It's that same thing of, well, they're all doing this thing. I want to be able to do this thing as well. But the thing that they're doing isn't necessarily related to the thing that I want to do. This is a really good question. I don't know whether um, what your experience of this was. Did you do a lot of kick drills yourself as a developing swimmer? No, I didn't because I found it so, so difficult. And my thought process was if I'm doing this thing and I'm not going forwards anyway, it doesn't seem to make any sense to to lie in the pool and flap my legs up and down. I literally didn't know which muscles to contract in order to try and produce the movement of the legs to move down the pool. And I think one of the big challenges of this is we call it a kick. It's not a kick. It's a waggle. If you imagine, if you imagine what a kick looks like with a football in front of you, that's not what we're doing with our legs in the pool. And that's what the misunderstanding of it is, I think. The first time a swimming friend of mine said to me, look, imagine that your buttocks are clenched together and you're trying to hold a piece of paper between your buttocks and you're then trying to waggle your legs from side to side. That was a completely different movement from what I was trying to do, which was essentially bending at the knees and trying to kick this imaginary football. So, yeah, you're right. Stiff ankles mean it's really, really difficult for someone to move down the pool. But that doesn't mean that we have to learn to get either really good at kicking down the pool or we have to get less stiff ankles in order to become a better swimmer. What we need to find to do is a way that we can help this athlete have a better position in the water because they're not going to be generating propulsion with those feet. We have to get them to be able to generate balance with those feet so that they can use the hip rotation to move down the pool. I'm really glad I asked that question because actually it feels like we've had quite a different experience. And I I think you're relating to the question far better than I am. And I, I say this because actually when I turned up to swim clubs, I picked up the kicking really easily. And so therefore right. I'm struggling to put my mindset in uh, a swimmer that's really struggling to get from a to b through kicking and actually within a matter of weeks and i'm not saying this to be arrogant quite the opposite but just to give you context that i was easily kicking one minute 45 per 100 100 after 100 and that's what we were doing with the swimmers and so i struggle to relate to a swimmer or an athlete that's saying i'm struggling to do 25 meters i'm just thinking just flutter kick and you'll you'll get there it's it's very low cost to do that and so i think that you're in a better position to actually answer this one and your your advice is going to be much more pertinent than than what i've got well it's also important to recognize your experience informs the fact that people can pick this up as adults some people can get really good at this and it can be a really rewarding experience For those athletes that can't get it, though, who've swum for a couple of years and still can't do that, I think the reassurance is you can still get good enough at swimming in order to be able to do your events. You're very probably never going to lead out of the water until you've learned how to kick a little bit better. But 
you can definitely learn to do enough of a, a, a foot flutter so that you can have a good position in the water. And I think that's the key thing to hold on to. Exactly. And I think there are two different um, perspectives. There's one, are you just trying to get from the start of the swim to the end of the swim feeling comfortable? But then I think let's not forget about the athletes that are looking for that Kona slot, World Championship yeah. slot, podium. And let me say that to the, if you're that kind of athlete, then this is my advice to you, which is if you've got the time available within your swim schedule, so you're never missing a swim, you're always there three times a week and actually kind of itching at getting more swimming done because it's realistic within your plan, then brilliant. This is where I'd I'd say that you'd benefit from having a really strong, efficient flutter kick. And the way that you can use that come race day is you can close down gaps and this might seem alien to, to a lot of athletes, but actually when you're in the open water and you can see a group in front of you or you can see two or three swimmers in front of you, they might only be five, 10, 15 meters ahead of you, but something needs to change for you to close down that gap. It might not necessarily be the stroke rate because you might already be close to your maximum, but if you can add a really efficient flutter kick to get onto those feet and then have a very easy 30 minutes remaining of your swim, then it's going to be worth having that. And it's a lot of investment of time to close down that gap and it's going to take months. But if you're the athlete looking for that peak performance, looking for a podium, you're looking for top age group, then kind of not neglecting that flutter kick is going to be really important. So it's not for everyone. And I think Rob's kind yeah. of touched on a really good point that, if you can't do it at this stage, but you're looking from getting from A to B to set up for the best possible bike and run, that's absolutely fine. Don't be spending half an hour of your swim set trying to kick because it's not relevant to you. But for the athlete that is looking for that peak performance, then I wouldn't write it off. And I do think it's worth investing in that time. Yeah, 100%. For those guys who are looking to make the front pack of the swim or or they can use tactics within the swim, then that's absolutely another, another string to your bow for sure. Um, I've got a question here, which um, I'm trying not to make it sound silly because I don't believe it is silly, but I think a lot of listeners might have a little smile um, when they listen to this. So how do I deal with open water fears such as um, imagining lake monsters or swimming into a snake? So this question specific. is a, it's a genuine question from a listener that yeah. comes in who lives in Florida. And his business is um, he is a fly fisherman instructor. When I looked at his website, I was like, wow, this is amazing. The fact you can, you know, live somewhere else in the world and make a living doing this. We had a bit of back and forth and he he sent me a photo or there was a photo there, I think, of the specific um, fish he's scared of. You know, if these fish are around and they're protecting their young, they will go for me. This is this massive snake headed <laughs> fish. That is this terrifying thing. Now, you know, living in Cheshire in England, I don't think I need to worry about swimming into a snake-headed fish at all. But I think the the how do I deal with the fear of it part of it is really true for everybody. And I don't know whether you ever had this experience, but the first time you go out onto the lake, onto open water, I can remember doing this at university in a canoe. I've got a boat under me and I totally freaked out at the thought, oh my God, we're half a mile out to the water. This water's 400 feet deep and I'm sitting in a little boat. I'm totally safe. You'd learn to deal with that at the time, but I'm sure people have that same experience sometimes in open water, get out into the middle of the water and suddenly all manner of things go on in your head and it's incredibly challenging to, to work through it. Yeah, I think we've all had that moment where a little stick or a leaf or a piece of reed touches your feet or gets tangled in your toes and you think that's it you know yeah. there's a shark that's made it into my local into into my local lake and it's you know we laugh now because it's we're, we're safe in our offices but it is genuinely very scary and there's an element that open water swimming does have an element of danger so you know there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek because it's silly to think of lake monsters in your in your local lake but actually being out there is quite treacherous, especially if you're doing it on your own. So I think personally, that's my first point. If you are nervous, and even if you're not, make sure there's an element of safety. So always be swimming with someone or always have someone eyes 
on you. Even if they're not swimmers, they can be on the shore, but make sure that they can always see you. And if you do come into any difficulty, and it's not necessarily a fear of a, a lake monster, but it could be any any issue at all, you kind of need someone there um, to help you. So personally, that's my first point of make sure that whatever you're doing in the open water is safe. And that means not doing it on your own, essentially. Yeah. And and the second point on the safety, which is a, a relatively recent invention that's genius, is the personal tow float. And they've gone from four or five years ago being something that I saw at an expo and thought, wow, what a what a weird thing that is to literally everyone having them in the being ubiquitous. I'm a massive believer in people all having um, an open water tow float to swim with. The camps we've got coming up, we're going to tell people, if you want to swim in open water, you need to bring your own tow float with you. Because it's such a simple thing for 20 quid that you don't notice it when you swim. But if anything happens, you have then got something to just hang on to. And it is a massive, massive safety barrier that you can take care of yourself. So really, really simple. That's one of the first things that can give you, you know, you know, you're not going to sink then because as well as your wetsuit being on, you've also got your toe float with you. That in itself can provide you with an awful lot of confidence, especially in the early days or the early part of the season. It's genius, it's genius because there are two elements to it. One is you're definitely going to be seen. So if there's any other traffic on the lake or the, in the sea, you are seen, which is, a, you know, that was a pretty yeah. big fear of mine, thinking that a boat might not see me and go straight over me. So you're definitely going to be seen. And secondly, whenever you want a rest, you get to chill out and, you know, you basically get to hug it and you're just bobbing up and down in the water, which is, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So if you know that you've got eyes on you at all times, you know that you've got a swimmer next to you, ideally, who's also got a tow float and you've got your own tow float, then that sets you up pretty well for a um, what we call a comfortable swim in terms of the anxiety around it. Yeah, for sure. And then we've just got this one last question uh, from a listener that says, hi, Rob and Chris. I've been listening for about three years now and I've entered into Ironman UK for this July. I'm really struggling with the cold. I swam the serpentine two miles and just found myself getting colder and colder as I was swimming. I was in a wetsuit on a lovely sunny day. By the time I finished, I was a bit of a wreck. And despite it being a hot day, I sat shivering and wearing all the layers I had. I'm not a super fast swimmer. And for context, she swam 62 minutes for the two miles. But it did trigger a bit of an alarm as to what it would be like if I then had to go on and do the rest of the Ironman after it. So, uh that's something that a lot of people go through, isn't it? Swimming into open water in the early season and finding it is much, much colder than you're expecting it's going to be. It can be a real challenge, especially in, I mean, I can remember when the open water season used to start mid end of June and now it starts mid April in a lot of places in terms of events, even people are swimming in open water all year round, which just a couple of years ago, it was almost unheard of. So I don't think it's unusual that people do a couple of miles swim in May and find that the water's cold. And even with a wetsuit on, they're getting really cold. Yeah. I. The good news is I think there's some great strategies um, mm. to kind of negotiate around this. Um, if we're starting kind of right at the beginning of the issue is make sure that you're signing up to an event and you know what the conditions are going to be like. So if you've got an absolute fear of the cold or you know that you're never going to do the steps to make yourself comfortable in that uncomfortable environment then maybe look at a event later in the year and i'm not saying that in terms of this particular athlete because this is a different situation but i think it's quite um a wise thing to do that make sure that you're picking events that you're going to be comfortable in to a certain degree once you've signed up to that and you know there's going to be some uh cold water challenges i do think getting in the water open water pre-race is key and i don't just mean on the day itself but in the five six eight weeks beforehand i think that's brilliant then what you do within that time is crucial one is making sure that on the shore so before you get in the water you're fully warmed up so even though you might only be doing an easy endurance swim i'd approach it as doing a full um onshore warm-up so you're doing full arm swings, you're getting your core temperature nice and high, and you're not just standing there talking, getting cold, which is what a lot of people are doing. They're literally on the side of the water saying, God, what's the temperature? And it is out and you can hear their teeth chattering. And I'm thinking, if they're cold now, 
they're going to be absolutely freezing when they get in. So make sure that your core temperature is nice and warm before you get in. Um, secondly, mm. I think the technology has moved on vastly. And now we're kind of in a luxurious position where you can cover your extremities with neoprene. So there are lots of brilliant brands that do um, gloves. So your hands don't get as cold. You've got the same for feet. So you've got little neoprene booties. You've got a skull cap, which covers your ears and straps under under your chin and you can put a hat on top of that and so you've got those three elements that are naturally going to protect you from the cold and i think that if you do that you know every time you have an open water swim when it's cold it's going to set you up for a much better session thirdly mm. i think that um, you don't want to fall into the trap of doing too much really easy swimming you know you're going to get really cold if you're doing for example don't do drills when you you're in the open water and it's really cold you're just going to get cold so quickly you don't want to be spending much time just treading water and talking to your swim partner you want to be swimming and keeping kind of the engine hot and as soon as it gets cold then it's kind of game over so i think doing as much continuous swimming as possible once you're in the water is a great way to go but also make sure that the swim set isn't too long so I think that, you know, once you get past 20 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes, depending on what the temperature is, there is that point of whatever you do in the water, you can start to feel that you're actually getting colder and colder and colder. Even if you increase your effort, you're still cold. And for me personally, that's the point where I think, actually, this is going to turn into more of a survival mission than it is yeah. a good swim. And you want to be reinforcing good technique as often as possible. And as soon as the cold is taking over, you're kind of losing control of your extremities, your limbs, your hands. And I'm pretty sure our swim technique isn't going to hold up much longer. I, th I think the biggest part about this that you mentioned is the acclimation aspect of it. You have to accept that if the water is really cold, and so, for example, if you're going to go and try and swim in some of the lakes in Wales, there's still snow melting on top of the mountains there in Snowdonia in, in May. And the people who did the original Slate Man back in the day in early May will, will attest it was a survival mission to even swim a thousand meters in there. So for this particular athlete we're discussing here, who is finding it very difficult and challenging in the cold anyway, the first part of it is going to be acclimation. So it's, as you've said, it's getting the right equipment on beforehand, getting warm before they get in the water, and then setting a relatively easy and achievable time in the water for the first time they swim, and then gradually increasing it. I think it sounds like this athlete suffers with cold more than most people will do. But for all of us, I think it's worth thinking we need to adjust to the temperature in the water before we try to do any meaningful training in the water at that temperature. So for the first swim in, maybe 10 minutes is enough, and then maybe 15 or 20 minutes the next time. But build that thing up gradually, because I don't think there's anything worse than trying to get in and swim for an hour and realising that you're absolutely freezing to death. That's That's one of the things. The second thing is around the water will feel different depending on whether it's sunny or not. So if there's direct sunlight shining on you, the water can feel 10 degrees warmer and vice versa. And I've been in the same lake two days back to back, one day with the sun out, and one day when it was cloudy. And the cloudy day felt like the water was freezing cold, whereas it was like bath water the day before. It can make such a massive difference to how we feel. So set yourself up for success by going for those first few swims, if you possibly can, on a day when it's sunny. If the sun's shining on you directly and ideally it being a bit warmer, that's really going to help. But I think the gradual acclimation to the temperature of the water is going to be the main thing for this athlete here. Big time. And looking after yourself is pretty crucial. So have a kind of um, simple system for you waiting for as soon as you finish your swim and don't be kind of yeah, flapping right. around yeah. in the car. Where's my towel? Where are my warm clothes? Have everything ready for you to give yourself the most pleasurable experience, which is going to mean that you're most likely to turn up again the next day or the next week. So, yeah, yeah I think having, you know, a lot of companies like Dry Robe have come up with something brilliant where you can get yeah. changed in public without getting cold and you know have nice warm socks and nice thermal yeah. whatever to to keep you warm because there's nothing else. yeah driving home shivering it is yeah. it's not good for anyone 
Dry robes are a, are a game changer or, or things similar to them. Woolly hat straight on, dry robe on while you get your wetsuit off, and then either a pair of warm woolly socks or a pair of Uggs or something similar. That can make the biggest difference because, as you said, it's the five or ten minutes spent standing around afterwards getting even colder that can really leave the athlete with a yeah. negative state of mind afterwards. I'm convinced this athlete, if they approach it in this way, if they acclimate to the water temperature gradually and, and add in little bits along the way, take care of the warm-up, take care of staying warm afterwards, it won't be an issue by the time Ironman UK comes around. Okay, guys, and that brings us to the end of this week's episode. So before we wrap this up, here are some discount codes and deals for you at precisionfuelandhydration.com. You can use the code OA23 for 15% off your first electrolyte order. And over at teamoxygenatic.com, We've got the most comprehensive endurance sports coaching program for busy age groupers. Whether you're looking to take part in triathlon, 70.3, Ironman, ultra running, duathlon, aquabike, running, marathon, sportives, gravel, anything, you name it. We've got training plans to help you out and we've got the coaching advice that's going to give you the advice that you need to really make the most of your limited training time this season. You can book a call with me or Coach Chris to see if you'd be a good fit for joining the team. It's just a link in the show notes there. And let's see how we can best help you out achieve your endurance goals for 2023. So remember, there's links in the show notes. You don't have to remember them. And until next week, have a great, safe training and racing week. I'm Coach Rob Wilby, and you've been listening to the Oxygen Addict Podcast. See ya. See ya.